I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Our text today is going to be verse 3 through 7 in a message entitled Share in Suffering. Uh, We are continuing on in our series, Distinctives of a Gospel-Shaped Church, uh, what a gospel-shaped church uh, should look like. And uh, we're thankful that God's given us direction in his word about how a church should be organized, what the leadership of the church should look like, and then how we are to be faithful with what he's entrusted to us through the gospel. Now, this subject of suffering focuses today from the scripture, not on suffering for things that we do that bring problems upon ourselves that are not wise. The focus is on what happens to us in a sin-fallen world uh, when we are living for Jesus and we're seeking to be faithful and to live our lives for him and some of the things that come to us and pass our way because of our faithfulness to him. Now, one of the things that we know is that people like things easy. That's our human nature. We tend to desire the path of least resistance. There's a team of researchers at University College of London that conducted a series of experiments. And what they did was they measured the willingness of participants to choose the more difficult of two tasks. They set up their experiment in this way. They put a cloud of dots on a computer screen that moved either left or right. The person playing the game was supposed to use levers at their left or their right to signal which direction they thought the dots were moving on the screen. The scientists then, subtly and unknown to the participants, added weights to the levers. And when they added weights to the levers, the participants began to see things differently. If the dots were moving left, but the left-hand lever was harder to pull, then people tended to see the dots as moving right, which was the easier choice. The same thing happened when the weight was put on the opposite side. What happened was the participants subconsciously shifted their view of reality just so they wouldn't have to work harder than they had to. Now that's our nature, and sometimes that can flow over into our spiritual lives, Uh, Human beings have a tendency toward the easy way, and that can affect our spiritual effectiveness. Now, obviously, we are to work smart and to use the things that are in front of us to their maximum effectiveness, and sometimes it's better for us to choose certain paths, but uh, the comparison remains. We sometimes will take the easy way spiritually and in life, and that can have negative effects on us. I would say in the last 50 years or so, a form of Christianity arose in the United States and has begun to dominate in North America. And this particular brand of Christianity is based and built upon a consumeristic approach. Uh, It's been noted that it has favored pragmatism over theology, crowds over disciples, marketing over evangelism, and coffee bars over catechism. Matt Reynolds wrote this. He said, even if we did not vocalize it, we have implicitly taught people by our methodology that the church exists to scratch their spiritual itch. And he says it's presented sometimes in this way. We have what you want. We have what your family will like. We have stuff for your kids. We have sports stuff. We have all the self-help studies that you could ever desire. We have music that you won't hate services that won't impose on your Sunday schedule, language that will make you feel just like you're hanging out with your friends, 
and certainly this part is not about me, uh, but trendy pastors to make you feel cooler than you really are. (laughs) I would be the antithesis to that. But he says what we say to people is come and get it at our church, what you want. And he says our method is our message, and our message forms people. Sometimes we try to our best at bait and switch, get them in the door and hope that they'll catch Jesus along the way. But it doesn't work that way. As Kyle Eidelman wrote, what you win them with is what you win them to. There was also a study that was done as of late by Rainer Research, and he made a comparison to something simple like church attendance patterns just two decades ago. And he said two decades ago, a frequent church attender was considered to be a person who was in church services once or twice a week. Before the pandemic, the twice-a-month church attendee was considered active. Now, the once-a-month churchgoer is the fastest-growing segment of church life. So you can see the progression. Once or twice a week, 20 years ago, was considered to be active. And then before the pandemic, that dropped to a couple times a month. And now that number has dropped down to the fastest-growing segment of church life being the once-a-month churchgoer. Now, I would like to say that we're different as a church, uh, but the reality is we track with some of those similarities as well. Uh, We've seen uh, since the pandemic, since I already referenced that, a continued uh, upward growth steadily. We're not back to where we were, but we're heading in the right direction. There's been an increased health and an increased uh, really vigor and, and, uh, and desire among the disciples of our church to grow, to be more like Jesus. But for every 100 people that we average in attendance on a given Sunday morning, it takes us 160 to 170 unique attenders a month to reach that number. So in other words, on any given Sunday, there's as many as 60 to 70% of the people who are not here, who are somewhere out there, who will be back for their once-a-month attendance pattern. Now, these are concerning trends because it is in keeping with this consumeristic mentality. And if we don't see the need to be committed in something simple, as simple as just showing up, then we're definitely not headed in the right direction. And we want these markers to be consistent with what we profess to believe. And the Apostle Paul was willing to embrace suffering for the sake of the gospel. To communicate the idea, he used three illustrations the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. In each case, there's a requirement to reach the goal and receive the reward for faithfulness. And I want to pick up with just three words in 2 Timothy 2 and verse 3 as we move ahead in this message. He says very plainly, share in suffering. Or maybe your translation says, endure hardship. This carries the weight of a requirement or a command. This is Paul the spiritual father, speaking to Timothy, his young protege and disciple in the faith and now leader at the church at Ephesus who's receiving his second letter from Paul. Paul is speaking and he's writing this from prison. And he's already mentioned this idea of suffering because he was well acquainted with it. Uh, He mentioned suffering twice previously in 2 Timothy 1 in verse 8 and then in verse 12. He will mention it three more times in this letter. In 2 Timothy 
2 in verse 9, 3 in verse 11, and 4 in verse 5. Suffering is the expectation for the person who desires to live a full life for God. It's also interesting to note that the word here for suffering is a compound word meaning. The significance of that is it shows us that we are never alone in the battle. God is with us, and other followers of Jesus are walking alongside of us. We're encouraging one another. We're praying for one another. We're spurring one another on toward good deeds as we seek to be faithful in the Lord. So I want to ask and answer this question in these few moments that we have together. How can we share in suffering according to what the Scripture teaches in this passage? Well, First of all, if you want to share in suffering, don't get entangled. Don't get entangled. I pick back up reading again in verse 3, and he says, Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. Verse 4, no one serving as a soldier gets entangled in the concerns of civilian life. He seeks to please the commanding officer. So many of us get entangled in things in life that are not helpful or holy or don't help us grow as disciples. And he uses this first illustration of a soldier to teach us why it's important and how we should not do that. Now, many of you have dealt with recruiters in the military realm. Uh, Others of you have dealt with recruiters in the business world and the civilian realm. If you have dealt with either of those, you know that, to say it nicely, recruiters sometimes are not fully honest or transparent. The reason they're not fully honest or transparent is because they have their own agendas to accomplish. They have quotas to fill. They have headhunter fees to secure. Or to say it more directly, recruiters sometimes flat out lie for their own purposes. Now, admittedly, people who are being recruited will do the same. They might shade a corner about something in their work experience, or they might uh, highlight something that they tell the recruiter they're better at than they really are. There are all sorts of things that are going on in those types of relationships. But recruiters are sometimes not honest. They're not honest about the upside of a job. They'll tell you the upside of the job is much higher than it really is. They'll overstate the salary potential in the future. Uh, They might tell you that the interest of the people they're recruiting for is actually greater than what it is for you as a candidate. They might tell you something about your fit for the job that is not uh, fully truthful or the difficulty level and on and on I could go. I say that to say this. The Apostle Paul was an honest recruiter. He was an honest recruiter. He had been laying before Timothy an extended challenge related to the hardships and to the hard work of the gospel. If people are called to follow Jesus and it is presented to them as a life of ease, then they're going to be highly disappointed and probably disillusioned when they find out the reality. I love what Warren Wiersbe wrote in his uh, book, Be Faithful. He said, if Jesus Christ had advertised for workers, the announcement might have read something like this. Men and women wanted for the difficult task of helping build my church. You will often be misunderstood even by those who are working with you. You will face constant attack from an invisible enemy. You may not see the results of your labor and your full reward will not come until after all your work is completed. 
it may cost you your home, your ambitions, and even your life. Paul has in mind a well-trained soldier. Military personnel, particularly in a time of war, have to have a focus that is laser-like on the mission that has been put in front of them. They have to be able to shut out unrelated concerns. This idea of a soldier would have been very familiar to Timothy as well as the other believers in Ephesus. Paul was in contact with Roman soldiers on a daily basis, which may have kept this at the forefront of his mind when he wrote to Timothy. And the life of an enlisted man in the Roman army would not have been easy. They enlisted at about the same age that uh, our people would enlist, but they committed from the outset for 20 years to serve in that army. The key word here is entangled. And this word reminds us it is easy to get entangled with things that are not necessarily wrong in themselves, although some of them are, but they are wrong when they distract us from seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Now, to get entangled physically, which is the illustration that we're drawn to here, uh, would be with something like a rope or a wire or a net. And the imagery is of being firmly caught up in it so that you can't break free. It means to be interwoven or wrapped up in it or twisted together so tightly that you cannot be extricated. Uh, there was a report that was released on uh, some marine life issues uh, here in a recent year. And one of the things that they specifically addressed in that marine life report was the entanglement of a certain whale species, large whale populations. And they had 76 confirmed entanglements. Now, there were more than that, but these are the ones that they actually went to to try to rescue and to try to free from the entanglement. Now, the good news is many large whale populations are actually increasing, but entanglement in fishing gear or marine debris represents a growing threat to the species. Of those 76 that they identified, they were able to save the lives of 50 of those and set them free from the entanglement. Now, these large whales weren't doing anything that would have been out of the ordinary or caused themselves to get entangled in something, uh, but rather they were going about their normal routine and the lives that they have under the creative hand of God. And I think when we get entangled in this world, most people who know and love Jesus don't wake up one morning and say, you know what, I think I'll just get entangled with the affairs of this life and the things that life brings my way so that Jesus and my life as a disciple will be secondary. They don't wake up thinking, you know what, I'm just going to do a bunch of stuff and I'm going to order my family's life in such a way that we're all just going to be entangled so that we can't really be useful in the kingdom. That's not how it happens. We're going about our normal routine. We're going about our normal lives. And we begin to collect these things and get entangled in these things that are not particularly helpful. You say, well, how can we avoid doing that? Well, you got to, first of all, keep your priorities in order. Soldiers, for example, have a job to do. They can't afford to get entangled with the affairs and the concerns of civilian life. There was something called the Roman Code of Theodosius. And it said this, we forbid men engaged in military service to engage in civilian occupations. So they knew that if they had these soldiers and they wanted them to be maximum uh, of, of maximum effectiveness, then they had to delineate what their responsibilities were and what they needed to focus on. You say, why are my priorities important? 
Your priorities speak to what's important to you. Your priorities have the effect of setting your goals. Your goals have the effect of setting your direction. Your direction has the effect of determining your outcome or your destination. So if you get the priorities out of order to begin with, you're not going to end up with what you thought you might want at the outset. Be careful about that and keep your priorities in order. Also, don't get entangled, secondly, by understanding the nature of the battle. The Christian life is a spiritual battle zone with people who have been enlisted by Jesus. And warfare means courage. It means commitment. It means sacrifice. You see, if we're presenting our faith in our relationship with Jesus as a product to be consumed when it's convenient, then we're not going to see things as they truly are. And when the spiritual battle comes and your enemy, the spiritual enemy who wants to steal, kill, and destroy, when he comes against you, you're going to shrink back because you've not been taught resolve. You've not been discipled in the Word. You don't really know how to depend on the Spirit of God to give you the strength that you need. And it's so important because this is a spiritual battle that we're in. And then I'd say third and finally for this point, don't get entangled by sin. Sin is the things that we do that are just outright disobedient to God. It can hold us back. It can take us off track. It can lead us away from God. And we've got to be careful about that. So I ask you this question. What in your life right now might be entangling you from your faithfulness to the Lord. And it can be something good, but it can be a priority that you set for yourself that takes all your time and all your energy and all your resources, takes your focus off of the Lord, and then you know in your heart that you're not where you need to be with the Lord. And something should be different. Maybe God's saying to you today, go back to your priorities, think those through, and help yourself not be entangled. Let those priorities set your goals. Let your goals determine your direction in line with what God's word and his will is for your life and make sure that you keep your eyes on Jesus as you do it. If it's sin, you need to repent. If it's a stronghold in your life, that there are things that are going on with you that you know you're continuing in day to day that are not pleasing to God, you need to start with a prayer of repentance. Most people are a prayer of repentance away from true life change. And that's what God is calling you to. Don't get entangled. And then second, compete with focus. Compete with focus. Now let's look again at this passage, picking up in verse 5. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. To compete means to strive toward an objective. Competing challenges people to move toward higher levels of achievement. It drives people to put forth their best. It encourages a healthy risk-taking as you serve God. It shapes, again, your goal setting. It teaches commitment and more. But I want to say this clearly. The reason that we are competing and the reason you compete in anything in life ultimately is to win. Let's just call it what it is. If you compete in something, 
you want to win. Now, I know we're in the age where everybody gets the trophy and winning is not as uh, significant of a level as maybe it has been in the past. And there are some things that maybe are even more healthy about that. But we want to win. And the good news is Jesus has already won. It's not up to us to win. Jesus has won the victory. So we're not working toward the victory in Jesus. We are working from the victory in Jesus. Because Jesus is the victor in what he's done in giving his life and shedding his blood for us. We have victory spiritually in him, and everybody ultimately does win. But now we're called upon to compete with focus. Paul drew from the world of athletics often uh, for illustrations of the Christian life. You remember he spoke of uh, running, uh, the idea of track and field in 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24. He said, don't you know that the runners in a stadium all race, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way to win the prize. He says, listen, if you're going to run, run to win. That's the point. Run well as you compete with focus. Then he mentions boxing just two verses down in 1 Corinthians 9 in verse 26. He says, so I do not run like one who runs aimlessly or box like one beating the air. And then finally, wrestling in Ephesians 6 and verse 12. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this darkness. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. Now, just like in our day, athletics then were very popular. Uh, people loved them. The, the Olympic Games were particularly of note. And today, people love sports around the world, either to participate in it or uh, to spectate it. And the most popular sport in the world is soccer, or as they properly call it, football. We hijack the word for American football, but soccer or football around the world is by far the most popular. Four billion people around the world participate in soccer. Cricket is second. Two and a half billion people participate in cricket. And, of course, a lot of that's in India, and that comes from the British days and all uh, and so on, and, and it's a very popular sport. Third, worldwide, is basketball. Two and a half billion people play basketball in the world, according to current estimates. Field hockey is next with two billion people. And then finally, tennis is at one billion people. Baseball brings up uh, number eight in the eighth place, and golf is all the way down in 10th place. And the fastest growing sport in the whole world is pickleball. <laughs> Can you believe it? Pickleball, the fastest growing sport in the entire world. Now, it still only makes up like a little fraction compared to these others. But there's a lot of people playing pickleball, and apparently it's increasing because it is the fastest growing one in the world. I say all that to say this. No matter what sport it is that you're competing in with focus, there are rules, parameters, and guidelines in how an athlete is to compete. If an athlete disobeys those things in their sport, they will either suffer a penalty in the short term or they'll be completely disqualified from the competition. Now, thankfully, we are saved by grace, and God's Word gives us guidelines to live by and compete within. And because of the blood of Jesus, we are not going to be disqualified from our faith, but we will suffer the disciplining or the chastening hand of God 
when we don't compete according to the guidelines that he's given us. And winners in the Olympics in those days were presented an olive wreath. And they would get the olive wreath from a sacred tree, or what they called a sacred tree, that was near the temple of Zeus, the false Greek god, in Olympia. And Paul said of that, we press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenward in Christ Jesus. So there's this striving. And Paul's saying, listen, if you're going to be a Christian and you're going to be a disciple, lean into it. Like, compete well. Like, it's a really important aspect, the central aspect of your entire life. Give it your best and be sure that you are engaged in it with all that you have. And there is a need for focus in order for us to grow in godliness. First Timothy 4 and verse 7, he says, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Single-minded devotion is needed in every area of life. And as we compete with focus, according to the guidelines God's given us, the commands of Christ are consistent with love and wisdom and the highest good. Now I ask you the question, what is it right now that is entangling you and keeping you from maximum effectiveness in your faith? But now I want to ask you another question. Are you competing with focus in your Christian life and really leaning into it, giving your very best to God? Or are you giving God what's left over? Are you focused on the things that eternally matter and are those things driving your life? And that brings me to the third and final point. If you want to share in suffering you need to work hard. Let's pick back up in verse 6 with the third illustration. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to get a share of the crops. A soldier in time of war lives on the edge of life and death on the battlefield. An athlete competes before a cheering crowd. A farmer works hard plowing and planting and ends the day tired as he goes home with little to no fanfare. Hardworking means to toil and strive to the point of growing tired because you're putting your best effort in it. It's actually used to describe pastors who work hard in preaching and teaching as well in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 17. And Paul commended those in Rome in the church who, quote, worked hard in the Lord. Romans 16 and verse 6. He also mentioned his own labor in the Lord's work in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10. He compared himself to the other apostles and he said, I labored more abundantly than they all. He said, hey, I did more than the whole crowd did. This is the effort that I put into it. And then we think about Jesus in his humanity who grew so tired from his ministry that he fell asleep in the boat. The hardworking farmer is known for rising early, dealing with a variety of problems and challenges throughout the day, working into the night and even through the night, depending on the season, and there is nothing glamorous about the work for the farmer. What is the farmer looking for? He's looking for the harvest. That's what he's looking for. What's the soldier looking for? He's looking for the victory. What's the athlete looking for? He's looking for the wind. The farmer is looking for the harvest. And he's completely dependent on God for the rain, for the growth, and ultimately for the harvest. 
And the scripture says here that the hardworking farmer was to be the first to get a share of the crops. Spiritually speaking, when Timothy provided spiritual food for the congregation at Ephesus, Paul saying to him, Timothy, you better eat first from the word of God. You, you better consume spiritually what God has for you if you're going to share it with somebody else. Because if you're not being fed from the word of God, you can't feed the word of God to others. But oh now, the ultimate share, the ultimate share and harvest is coming at the end of the age. I think about the vision around the throne of God of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation singing one united chorus, worthy is the Lamb. And the blessing of what God will give to us eternally will come at the judgment seat of Christ. Remember, we'll not be judged for our sins. Our sins were judged at the cross. All of our sins, past, present, and future, are covered by the blood of Jesus when our faith and our trust is in him. When we repent of our sins and we turn to the Savior, then we stand secure in him and nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But there is coming an accounting for how we have used or what type of stewards we've been of the things God has entrusted to us. And the Christian is called to work hard and to suffer when called upon and trust God for the outcome of his efforts. And we don't want to be ashamed when we stand before the Lord. We don't want to be like the parable of the talents where the one guy took the one talent and buried it in a hole. We don't want to stand before the Lord and have buried our talents that he's given to us for his glory and for the advancement of his kingdom and not invested those and leveraged them for the glory of God and his work. We want to be faithful. We want to stand before the Lord and say, Lord, I wanted to be faithful to you and I've worked hard with what you gave me and I wanted other people to know you and to experience the same blessings that I've experienced. Listen to me carefully. A soldier cannot stop fighting until the battle is over. The athlete cannot stop competing until the game is complete. The farmer must not stop working until the harvest is finished. And the scripture is clear that the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, we are to pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up laborers, people who work hard to go into the harvest field. And that's us. It's it's the church. They don't call it the work of the ministry for nothing. The reason it's called the work of the ministry is because it's work. So I ask you this question as we look to Jesus as the greatest example of suffering who suffered to serve as our substitute. What type of effort are you putting forth in your Christian life? Are you on the sideline, constantly sitting on the bench, drinking the water, watching everybody else do something? Are you engaged on the field? Are you surrendered to the Lord and saying, Lord, I want to use everything you've entrusted to me, and I want to be faithful. I want to be faithful in my fellowship with you. I want to be faithful to my family, and I want to lead them well. I want to disciple my kids if God's given me disciple, uh, kids to disciple. I want to be faithful to my spouse. I want to be faithful in my vocation and the area that God's gifted me in in the world. I want to serve and minister to others and love my neighbor as myself. I want to see people all the way to the ends of the earth come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. You've got to work hard 
And as you do that, Jesus is not laying heavy burdens on you. He's giving you rest, and you're resting in him. You know why we get tired serving the Lord? We get tired serving the Lord most often because we rely on our own strength, and we don't lean into those things that he's told us to do as part of our lives, to be healthy and to be strong spiritually. We're trying to do it in our own power. But when we rest in him, he will accomplish far more through us as we work and labor in the fields of harvest than we could ever do on our own. Now I come back to verse 7, the final verse of this passage that we're considering. He says, consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Consider what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. And my prayer is this, may the Lord give us understanding in everything. The analogies of the soldier, the athlete, and the farmer were meant to help Timothy understand the call to suffer in his own life. All three of these have an element of suffering if they're done well. The soldier, the athlete, and the farmer. It's not easy. None of them are easy. But they also carry with them a reward. I love what C.K. Barrett wrote. He said, beyond warfare is victory. Beyond the athlete's effort is the prize. And beyond agricultural labor is the crop. The gospel is our charge. We're to guard it by being strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. We're to delegate it to other people who are faithful so that they can also make disciples. We're to join in suffering with devotion to Jesus. And he will use our willingness to surrender to him for his glory. I close with this story about two ladies who are from Iran. It's illegal to share the gospel with Muslims in Tehran, Iran. Two Christian converts by the name of Miriam Rostampour and Marzieh Amazadeh met in Turkey. They became friends quickly, and they committed to give their lives to reaching the lost in the cities of Tehran. For three years, they spread the gospel and New Testaments around the city. In the midst of an illegal place, they carried New Testaments in their backpacks. And in that span of time, they shared 20,000 New Testaments with people on the streets. Now, what they did not know is that they were being very closely watched. And in 2009, they were brought in by the police. They were arrested. They were placed in a detention center. They would later say this of the detention center. Most amazing of all, we were in the best place we had ever been for witnessing to people who are hungry for the gospel of Jesus. We could tell our fellow prisoners the story of Jesus openly because nobody would come into that rat hole to spy on us. They were charged eventually with sedition and threatened with torture and execution. And they were placed in the infamous Evan prison, which they called, listen to this, our church. They were there for nine months. They were eventually released under intense international pressure. They were granted asylum, and they later wrote the book entitled Captive in Iran, a remarkable true story of hope and triumph amid the horror of Tehran's brutal Evan prison. Nothing, friends, can stop the power of the gospel. Nothing can. Two women who you would have never even heard of and I might not have even read about if I weren't looking for a closing story to a sermon. 
who were faithful in an illegal place to share the gospel with countless numbers of people. And they were willing to do it even at a great price to themselves. Nothing can stop the power of the gospel. Secular governments cannot. Human philosophies cannot. False religions cannot. The spiritual enemy cannot. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And as Paul said to Timothy, may the Lord give you understanding in everything. May the Lord give us understanding in everything so that we would be willing to share in the suffering of Christ for his glory, for his namesake, and for people who don't yet know him. Why? Because we are moving toward a future that is already secure in Jesus. But in the meantime, God's gathering for himself a family. He's gathering for himself a family. And if you know Jesus, you're a part of that family. We're a part of this local church family, but we're part of a much larger family worldwide who know the name of Jesus and have called on him as Savior and Lord. And my prayer for us is that we would not live our lives as Christian consumers. That we would not see God as a product to be sold and consumed. But we would see God in all of his glory. And we would understand this life that he has called us to. This is my prayer for our church. This will not be the last time by any stretch that I focus in on this particular way of thinking. Because it has captured the church in America. People think about what they can get out of the church rather than what they can give and contribute and serve through God's kingdom. And if we will change our mindset, it will shape us and help us be faithful to the message. The message will determine our methods, and God will determine the outcome, and he'll get the glory for it. That's the kind of place you want to be. That's the kind of disciples we want to be. And may the Lord give us understanding in everything so that we can walk that path. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. I've preached this message today not to discourage you, but to encourage you. I'm wanting you to see past what has been communicated by so many in the Western world of what church looks like and what disciples are to be and do. And I just want to call you back to the profound nature of what Scripture is teaching us by the Holy Spirit. And I want us to dig in and say, Lord, Lord, help us. Help us, Lord. Help us not go through the motions. Help us not be religious consumers. Help us to be faithful disciples. That's my prayer. Oh, God, would you make it so for us? We we want there to be a sincerity and a depth here that Uh, It's beyond what certainly is in the world, but it's beyond what is even being presented in many churches. Keep us faithful to your word. Keep us close to what is true and right and holy that is consistent with your character. And God, as we desire to be your disciples and to know you better and to serve you more faithfully, help us to start in the practical ways that we can do that. Help, Help us to start in our homes in our vocations, in the world that we live in, in our neighborhoods. And Lord, just help us to be faithful. Take us where we are and lead us to where you want us to be. I pray also if there are any today who have not yet 
trusted in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, that today would be the day that they would say, I want to begin a new life in Christ. I want to be saved. God, may you touch their hearts as we close out this service together. Continue to grow us, encourage us, and lead us by your Spirit as we continue to surrender our hearts and our lives to you because you're worthy. We give all these things to you. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen.